Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We are in a series on God's blueprint for renewal. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about God's blueprint for fullness and for all things to to be summed up in Christ. And so he has a plan. He has a way to take us from seasons of decline into seasons of fullness, seasons of renewal. This has been one of the visions or activities that our ministry as Risen King, um, that we have focused on, ministering to the presence of God, experiencing him in a felt way, in a, not just a sense of his everywhere presence, but a sense of his fullness, a sense of his manifest presence. So we've been a church that has had a growing sense of what God is building here. Almost as if you have a construction site where you have materials laying around and you're anticipating what's going to be built. And we knew it wasn't fully developed into everything that we wanted it to be, but we were starting to see more and more people come. We were seeing people come to Christ. And then boom, wow. This coronavirus hits us. We're in the midst of a nation, a world in turmoil over racial injustice. Change has hit us as individuals. It's hit us as a church. How are we going to look at this? I believe this is part of God's blueprint. I do not believe that any of these things are coincidental or accidental. I think God wants us to respond according to what is happening in the world around us, and to do so with wisdom, knowing, discernment, spiritual understanding. And part of that is you have to know, what does God consider the norm for a life-giving church? For a church that blesses the community, that changes, in a sense, the world by its activities. Well, I believe that the place that you find that blueprint is in Acts chapter 2. After Peter preached on Pentecost, the Word of God says, those who had received his word were baptized, and the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added. And then what resulted from that in Acts chapter 2, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, And to prayer, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the norm. This is the blueprint. What is in this passage, what is 
evidenced in this church in the immediacy after Pentecost is God's plan for not only the church, but how the church affects the community. As we study this, we're not just going to study it today. We'll study it ongoing because this is the blueprint that we want to see in our church today. Now, as we look at this, what we see is the beauty, and this is so important. It's the beauty of a Christian community that has experienced a visitation, a visitation of the manifest presence of Christ. We don't have this kind of beauty in and of ourselves. We don't have this kind of beauty in our programs or our methodologies. We need His presence, His glory to beautify us to turn us from lead into gold. And he beautifies not only us individually, but the church as a whole. And then that glory spreads to the community. And that draws, according to the scriptures here, draws people in. And you'll notice in what was going on, it had a deep social impact. Anyone who had needs, their needs were being met. There was a willingness to share resources, power, to share their lives. Not only did they meet in the temple, they met in each other's homes. They entered deeply into each other's lives, not just in public worship, but in private spiritual friendships. What we see here is what could be called the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It is not just for that, that season. This is the pattern. This is the blueprint. The anointing of the Holy Spirit and what the old, uh, the old English Puritans and divines called it was an unction, an outpouring where he is anointing his love. He's, he's supercharging his love on individuals, on a church, on a community. That's what is seen in Acts chapter 2. It's not a program. It's not merely passivity saying, you know, we don't have anything to do. There's no role that we play. It's all, we're just going to see if God will do something. No, it's not that. As a matter of fact, it is a pattern that we see throughout history of the way that God renews his church. There are these spiritual, internal spiritual dynamics that have to be present in order to see this unction of the Holy Spirit or this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the love of God and the people of God. The first is, and you see this pattern throughout history, is the church, not just the society, but the church itself faces an obstacle or a problem, something that's a great crisis. Well, check the dynamic number one. We're facing a great crisis we have hit obstacles like we've never seen before. We're, uh, we're trying to find solutions to problems that are way above us. And then the difference is that when you see that crisis, the church doesn't look to the government to solve it, doesn't look to the law to solve it. What happens is the church begins to respond to the crisis in an extraordinary seeking after God. Normally this is prayer and worship and responding to the word of God. And out of the desperation and hunger of his people, God visits his people. 
one writer, I usually use the word his manifest presence. In other words, you're, God is always presence, but you're not always aware of it. When you experience his manifest presence, it's because you're aware of his presence. There's something that changes about his at, the atmosphere. One writer calls it his royal presence. The sense of the king is, is, is among us. And when that happens, you see a visitation of God. He begins to deal with us personally, and he begins to communicate with us. And he begins to show us how to respond to what he is doing. It is a, a felt presence where God visits those who are seeking after him. See, there's a great danger that when we face a crisis, that we have lost our hope, we have lost our are seeking after God in the crisis, and we have failed to really learn how to pray in such a way that expresses hunger and thirst and faith. See, what we're really looking for is a class, this is a classic definition of the work of God or the visitation of the Holy Spirit. It's when you see the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Come on now. I don't want the ordinary work. Ordinary work is, is, is good. But we're in a crisis. We need to see the extraordinary work, which means it will produce extraordinary results. Well, what are some of the results that I would like to see? I think at, I think at times you have to begin to get specific. And you have to say, this is what I'd like to see. I don't just want to see, friends, I don't just want to see systematic racism go underground. What I'd like to see is the end of it, the end of racial injustice. And I'm going to go back to what I talked about last week. When, I, when Isaac went to redig the wells of his father, the water was there, but there was rubbish in the well. And you see, in a way, if we're to see the extraordinary result of the end of racial injustice, then we got to get rid of the rubbish so that we can get to the pure water that the Holy Spirit will bring this unction upon equality, dignity, people feeling safe in their own communities and homes and not being intimidated or manipulated so that they can be dominated. Or another thing that I would like to see is I'd like to see exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2. A church becoming a place, becoming a place and a space where we know this is where God dwells. And how do you know that? Well, when there's no more dividing walls. Where what Paul said Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross becomes a reality in space. In reality in a place. In other words, there, there will be neither Jew nor Greek. There will be no separation by race or culture, or ethnicity. There'll be neither slave nor free. There'll no longer be any socioeconomic separation. There'll be no male or female. There'll be no saying one gender or one sex is better than the other, or one should dominate the other. But rather, all are one in Christ Jesus. Look, this is already a reality that Jesus has broken down these walls for us, but there are very few spaces or places where there isn't rubbish about these things. 
And why do we go back for the blueprint to Acts chapter 2? Because they were all in one place together, but they were in one accord. They were of one mind. They were of one heart. It wasn't simply a program, friends. It was an anointing of the Holy Spirit on a community and an anointing of the Holy Spirit on individuals who formed that community. And so what I realize as I look at this closely is that there are sometimes we're praying for things that the Holy Spirit's never going to anoint. But when you start to see God's blueprint, then you start to see this is what he wants to anoint. This is where he pours out his spirit. Well, I mean, some of these things are, there's some basics that have to be maintained and held on to and even defended. You know, the Holy Spirit is described by Jesus in John 16 as the spirit of truth. He's not going to anoint lies, fantasies, fictions. He is only going to anoint truth. And where do we see the revelation of His truth, well, that means you have to submit to the authority of the Word of God. You have to submit to Scripture. The Holy Spirit pours out His life on the Scriptures. Wherever your life is not in alignment with the Scripture, He's not going to pour out His blessing on your disobedience. He's not going to resource your rebellion. So here's a blueprint. There are lines in a blueprint. There are lines... And God himself says these are the lines. And one of those lines is the Holy Spirit anoints his word because he's the spirit of truth. So that means this. You can't just have any old idea of God. You can't have God of your imagination. It has to be God of the revelation. <laughs> In other words, if you look at Scripture, you'll see that our God is a sovereign God. You can't have another God except as the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's transcended. He's not us. He's above us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But yet, the scripture equally reveals that he is intimate. He is near us. He is a person. But never forget that he is not us. He's other than us. That's what holiness means. He's a holy, holy, holy God. The Holy Spirit will never anoint a revelation of God that doesn't fit with these basic revelations of who God is. The Holy Spirit will not anoint something that is not centered on Jesus Christ and on who Jesus Christ really is. That He's fully man and He's fully God. The Holy Spirit is personally committed. He has made a covenant with the Son of God that he is committed to the mission of Jesus. So he will anoint what is the mission of Jesus because who he is and what he has is completely committed to glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many ramifications of that. If you look at your life and you're praying so hard for things that are outside of the mission of Jesus, he has no commitment to that. He will not anoint it. He will not give unction to that which he is not committed to. And he is committed to lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ before the whole world. But one of those other things that he anoints, and here we're going to start to 
drill in for a few minutes. The Holy Spirit's work in salvation is that he is the one that takes Christianity and makes it far different from every other religion. It is not a changing of philosophy. It's not even a changing of theology primarily. It's not just getting a new morality. It is a change of identity. It is a change of spiritual DNA that without being born of the Spirit, you cannot be a Christian. He will not anoint a message of morality. He will only anoint a message of regeneration, of becoming new in Christ, becoming born of the Spirit, because otherwise you have no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Holy Spirit is not going to anoint a message of behavior management or sin management. He will only anoint a message of radical salvation. And the scripture is really clear. Without faith, you have not received the gift of that salvation. So if you look at the history of when God visited, the visitations of God among cultures and societies and people, what you'll find is that there are some common characteristics. And hopefully as I go through this blueprint, you will say with me, these are my characteristics. You find men and women who begin to get desperate, who begin to realize the urgency of the hour. And then what happens is because the Spirit is visiting them and revealing their own hearts, you begin to realize all the things I counted as goodness in me, as being better than other people, is actually just filthy rags. And you start to realize that your righteousness is of no value whatsoever. And this is not a bad thing. This is the beginning of renewal, is when we no longer can look at ourselves and say, I'm better than. You know, I'm good or I'm good enough. There has to come a time where we begin to realize, I can do nothing. And begin to cry out to God for mercy and for compassion. And I may say this more than once. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. It doesn't matter what the crisis is. If you still think you're sufficient for the crisis, you're not a candidate for renewal. It's only when you realize this is bigger than me. This is bigger than society. This is bigger than my church. Only then can we begin to say, okay, now we're ready. Because really and truly, even in the midst of what's going on with the murder of George Floyd and, and the list of others who've been murdered, what's going on with the sense of unrest and even with peaceful protest, if we are looking at this biblically, we must understand that this is bigger than us. It's bigger than legislation. Now, hear me. I think there needs to be legislation. I think there at least needs to be restraint. But we are, we are Bible-believing, Holy Spirit-receiving people. And we believe there can be more than restraint. We, can, we believe there can be change. There can be transformation. 
that we don't have to be stuck in the slavery of the corruption of this world, but that this world can be transformed. But how is it transformed? It's not transformed simply by legislation, friends. It has to be a rediscovery of the very heart of Jesus, which is the heart of the gospel. So what am I saying? Well, I know I may lose some of you on this because I think you got to go back to the truth. I think you got to go back to doctrine. And you have to realize that the heart of Jesus and the heart of the gospel is something called justification by faith and by faith alone. In other words, God has acted in such a way to change this world, to change every individual. It has to be rediscovered in such a way that we begin to say, if God does not do it to us, then we are lost. There has to be a sense where we begin to realize our helplessness. That the issue is not just race relations. The issue is relationship with God. What happens that's so powerful and what changes everything and what changed in the upper room and what changed in the church at Pentecost is they started to realize that their past religious activities, their religiosity of the past had utterly no significance. This has happened every generation where there's been a visitation of God. The people realize my faithfulness even in church has no significance. All of my charitable giving has no significance because... It has to be a righteousness that is received by faith, a righteousness that comes from God, not a righteousness I produce on my own. Listen to me on this. When the visitation came at Pentecost, when the visitation has come at other times, the people of God started it by seeing that, <laughs> that their religion was worthless. It was of no value that God must and we need him to justify, not the righteous. He has no need to justify the righteous. They could justify themselves. But God in Jesus Christ has come to justify those who are not righteous. The, God justifies the ungodly. Now, why is that so important? Well, let me show you how important it is from the story of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul worked very hard to be acceptable to God. He was utterly obsessed religiously. So he lists in Philippians 3, he lists his accomplishments. He, he, he gives a resume of righteousness. But when you read his resume of righteousness from the standpoint of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see the list is this is really a guy who is nothing but self-righteous and racist. So Saul, before he became Paul, was basically nothing more than a self-righteous racist. You look at the list. And he believed even that his racism was religious. He believed it was virtuous. He believed it would gain him an acceptability with God. That's how deceived the human heart can be, that even religion can be used to promote racism. 
Look at him. If you don't believe me, go read his list. He says, uh, Hebrew of the Hebrews. What do you think he's saying? I was so racially pure that I was better than everybody else. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Why do you think he says that? Because he's saying we were the only one of two that followed King David. The other ten were lost. So he's even comparing himself favorably among his own tribe. But then when you see the Apostle Paul who became the cross-cultural apostle to the Gentiles, his racism is gone. Why? Because now the basis of his acceptance with God is the righteousness of Christ, not his record, not his resume, but Jesus' resume. Let me illustrate this. It's important you get this. See, his view, let's just talk about honesty. I could talk about other things, but I'm going to talk about honesty, okay? So as a Pharisee, that was his religious sect. As a Pharisee, he absolutely believed that lying was a sin. As Paul the Apostle, he also believes that lying is a sin. But here's how it worked out. You know, because Paul is a human being, he was mostly honest with the occasional lie, both as a Pharisee and as an Apostle. But see what Paul says in Philippians, he says, I look at everything differently now because I have no righteousness of my own. I have no resume. I have no record of righteousness. And so what he's saying is, is though the, the view of lying has changed, the motive about lying, the, the view of lying has stayed the same, but the motive has changed. Because now he looks at everything and says, I have no righteousness of my own. But before, do you know what he said? He was saying when he was being honest, he was saying this. I am honest in order that I might save myself, in order that I might earn God's favor, that I might put God in my debt so that I'm in control of my own life. I can be superior to other people. I can make demands and I can assert my rights. You understand, in a way, religion promotes racism. Because it says, in order for you to be acceptable to God, you have to be better than other people. You have to have control over other people. You have to have control over your circumstances. But worst of all, religion says you're putting God in your debt. And so until we discover the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we stay racist. We stay self-righteous. If we're not comparing ourselves to other races, we will compare people from our own tribe and say, I'm better than you. Because as long as I am competing on the basis of my resume of righteousness or my record of righteousness, I will always have to compare myself to somebody else. And here's what happened when Paul did that as a Pharisee. When he saw people who were better than him, he, he was intimidated by them. So he couldn't have relationship with them. And when he saw people who were worse than him or less than him, he was, he was offended by them. He despised them. Do you understand whether someone was greater or someone was lesser? He could not love them because he was competing with them. One made him feel superior. One made him feel inferior. This is why... The gospel is so important because Paul now looks at people. Paul, the apostle, not Saul, the racist, looks at people and says, how can I despise them 
even though they're different from me. He's a Jewish rabbi, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who's going into the homes of Gentiles, breaking bread with them, living with them, loving them. He says, how can I despise them because I have no righteousness of my own. I have been saved by grace. Grace is undeserved merit and favor and love from God. And if that's the basis, then I'm not better than them and I'm not worse than them said, how can I be intimidated by anyone? I am completely accepted in Christ. I'm not afraid. So Paul could go into any Gentile city and he could start a church that became, that started often Jewish because he says, this is the dynamic of the gospel. It's the power of God first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But he could go into any of these cities and he could cross cultural barriers, language barriers, everything, and start a church that was life-giving. And you see, that's the norm. The norm that the Spirit anoints is not your intimidation by people or, or the sense that you despise people because they're less than you. The norm that, that the Holy Spirit anoints is when we look and say, there is no other basis for acceptance. There's no other basis for identity. There's no other basis of value except the grace of God which has been, been brought into my life by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the work of my own hand, not religion. Matter of fact, what Paul says is it was religion and Paul himself and his record that had kept him from the beauty the beauty of God, the glory of God, the glory of God expressed in the multicultural, multicolored church of Jesus Christ. That's the glory that Christ looks for. That's the blueprint that he will anoint by his spirit. Oh, please get this with me. One of the writers I, I love wrote it this way. He said, in the church, there is still a good deal unconsciously of holding on to works and of regarding this whole matter of salvation as something that results from what we do as if we could make ourselves Christian people. Well, what is this great truth, even in this visitation of God in the first century at Pentecost? The great truth is this, and this is what will attract the outpouring of the Spirit in any generation, and it's Jesus plus nothing. But you have to understand it is so easy to get caught up in the turbulence of the day. It's so easy to get caught up in how nothing ever changes. It always is so corrupt. It always is so bad. And not remember that there's a well. There's a well, but there's always going to be resistance to going and finding the well. There's going to be resistance to digging the well. Remember what I talked about last week, that there was, there was rubbish in the well. And there were people who contended for the well. I'm saying to you, this kind of living water, this kind of anointing and unction of the Holy Spirit doesn't come passively. It comes by those who say, I will fight through the resistance. Paul himself had to fight with all of his might against a group of teachers who came into his, his churches that he had established in Galatia. And they had come in and they were trying to get them to turn away from the gospel. And this group of teachers at one point had even persuaded Peter, and they had persuaded Barnabas to think their way. And here's the way 
that they were convincing the people that they had to think. They said, yes, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were orthodox in their beliefs about the Lord Jesus Christ. But then they said, but that's not enough. They said, also, you've got to keep the whole law of Moses. You've got to keep the ceremonial law. You've got to keep the moral law. And primarily, you've got to be circumcised or you will not be saved. And then they said, if you can do all that, then maybe you will be saved. You know what Paul said to that order of salvation? He cursed them. He damned them. Because he said this, if you must keep the law of Moses, then you are insulting the sacrifice of Jesus. You're insulting the resurrection. You're insulting the one who is at the right hand of the Father because you're saying that his sacrifice has no meaning for you, that it's all up to you to make yourself holy and acceptable. Paul said, even to Peter's face. And the truth was, friends, it was at least subtle, if not less than subtle, racism. You have to become a Jew in order to be acceptable to God. That's what they were saying. And Paul, Paul went at Peter right to his face and says, you'll not get away with this. This is a perversion of the gospel even to the Apostle Peter, because you see, this is what has to be contended for, no matter what's going on. Jesus plus nothing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this isn't just in the by and by and in heaven when we die. This is talking about God's salvation coming into the life of every believer, into every church, and then flooding into every community. This is his blueprint. Not just that we have some individual sort of happiness that I'm going to go to heaven. No, that we begin to bring that salvation to bear right now on earth as it is in heaven. Well, basically, again, it comes down to this. Is it religion you have? That religion is what have I done for God? Or is it real Christianity, which is what has God done for me? This is why that whole phrase, justified by faith, is so foundational to everything that flows out of the Holy Spirit's anointing. You see, justification means there's a legal or a forensic kind of description of salvation. In other words, do you realize that when God looks at you because you are in Christ, because you have received Christ as your Savior, he no longer sees, even though he looks deeply into your life and into your soul, he no longer sees your sin and he no longer sees you as a sinner. That's what justified by faith means. He sees instead the righteousness of Christ. When he looks at you, he doesn't see the failures you see. He doesn't see the the sins and mistakes that you've made, he sees the righteousness of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he declares this is legal, this is forensic, this is the way he will look at you from now and forevermore. So that by faith in Christ, you are accepted by God and that will not change. It is a legal decree. And you are acceptable to God because he's not looking and finding a righteousness of your own. He's looking and finding the righteousness that satisfies his heart that is now to your account. This is what I'm trying to say to allow any rubbish in this well. To put anything plus Jesus is to destroy the beauty of this well. To say, 
to say it in some way it's Jesus plus. I will tell you this. I hope you'll listen to me on this. The church I grew up in was a Jesus plus something else church. It really was a Jesus plus being white. Now they never called it that. They just like to identify characteristics of whiteness according to morality. They began to often major on minors and then call that as the things that are acceptable to God so that then you could look at other people, particularly other races, other cultures, and say because they don't have these same values or because they don't necessarily have these same morals, they're not good enough. And we can't let them into our church or we can't let them into our lives. See, when you are a segregated racist church, you're a Jesus plus church. You're saying it's Jesus plus. You have to look like me. You have to act like me. You have to have the same values as me. And you have subtly, subtly perhaps, or unconsciously maybe, you have stopped having the purity of the gospel and now you have a perverted gospel, a twisted gospel. And the Holy Spirit will not anoint such a gospel. Now you can be mad at me and I'm okay with that. But that's what Paul says. Paul says a gospel where you put Jesus plus, people have to have certain morality, certain behaviors, certain ways of looking or appearing. He says that's a perversion. And he says it's no gospel at all. And I can tell you, the Holy Spirit will never anoint no gospel at all. So what is, what is asked of us if we're going to redig this well? Well, here's where we go a little deeper into this. If I haven't lost you already, I probably will now. Because what Paul says is you have to abandon your accomplishments, your religion, your experiences, your status, even your ethnicity. He abandoned. He accounted it all as loss. Why would he do that? He said, because I have something better. The surprising greatness of gaining Christ. If I'm, if I'm really understanding what Paul is saying here, whether you're a racist or you're an anti-racist. If you're using that as your record of righteousness, then it's time to count it as loss. Because neither being a racist nor being an anti-racist is going to make you acceptable to God. It's not Jesus plus being an anti-racist. It's Jesus plus nothing. Jesus is the only one who is acceptable to God and He's offering you that acceptability but only through faith in Him leaving everything else, every resume you have, every record you have behind and saying it's Jesus plus nothing. Well, here's what I've discovered. You've got, in crisis days, you have to walk very carefully. Because there are dangers on both sides. It's dangerous if you're wrong. And this is the, the biblical thing is it's dangerous when you're right. Because being wrong sometimes will justify and defend what's wrong. And when we're right, we'll have a pride about being right and thinking it makes us acceptable because we're right. I've seen some of my brothers fall into that. Now, Facebook isn't the greatest place to judge people's work, but... I'm seeing people slip into this. So here's what, I, here's what I say about me. It is hard as a white man, 61 years old, been a pastor for almost 40 years, 
it is hard for me to hear the criticisms, the failure, particularly the failures of the white church and the white pastors. And what is so easy for me to do is when I start feeling the criticism or I start feeling the judgment is to put up my record of righteousness. Oh, but you know, I worked with John Perkins. I was, I was early in, when I was 18 years old working in the community. I was, I was you know, and I, I want to put up my record of righteousness and say, I'm not one of them. But this justification by faith, this counting all things loss, says it doesn't matter what my record is. It doesn't matter. My record needs to be burned up. My record has to be torn up. I, I can't stop the hurt and the pain of my brothers by saying, look at my record. And what I'm doing is I'm revealing that I'm still boasting in and counting on my own righteousness to defend, justify, and excuse me. So every time anyone in the white community or anyone from the white church or whatever says, but look at my record, Paul said, count it loss. Paul says, throw that thing out. Matter of fact, Paul says it's, it's excrement. He calls it crap. And that's even, he's even more vulgar than that, but this is recorded, so I'm not going to do that. You see, every time somebody comes at you and, and you're saying they're, they're attacking my church or they're attacking me, and you put up the record of righteousness, you're putting up crap. And you're defending yourself, you're boasting in your anti-racism or you're boasting in being countercultural. you're putting up crap. Listen, put it down. The only righteousness you have is Christ. The only thing that will defend you is Jesus, your champion. Not your record, not your resume, his resume. All right, so I've got some people mad with that one. I'll get the others mad with this one. There's also a grave, grave danger. And this is true in any season. There's a grave danger for people who have been offended, who've been abused, who've been oppressed. There's always a grave danger because it feels like I have a right to use my anger and to use my hate. You see, you've got to understand this. And again, maybe it's hard to hear this from a 61-year-old white male. But you need to hear this. There is no human alive. There will never be anyone alive. There will never be an organization that will be able to atone for 401 years of, of, of oppression, of racial injustice, from slavery to economic depression and oppression. There will be no one who can ever atone for that, ever. And sometimes when I hear people say, we need to see repentance, they're actually talking about atonement, not repentance. There is only one atonement for sin. And there's only one atonement acceptable for sin. This is why it grieves me if only those who are secular people are pursuing and prosecuting for justice. Because there will never be atonement. There can be change, but there can't be atonement. Only Jesus atones for sin, and only the sacrifice of Jesus can atone for the wounds that have been inflicted on people who've been oppressed. Think about this. This is the greatest test that any oppressed person, abused person can have, is will I allow 
these wounds to be atoned for by Jesus when they cannot be atoned for by the people who hurt me. See, when we get hurt, it feels like somebody's got to pay. When we get hurt, it hurts so much worse. And we want the, the ones who hurt us to hurt at least as bad, if not worse, than they hurt us. But it's even worse when you realize it's gone on for so long. It's easy to forget when I'm hurt that, that the Holy Spirit will not anoint my hate. He'll not anoint my bitterness, my unforgiveness. And it's easy also to say, how, how do you expect me to forgive something so unjust, so unrighteous, so systemic? And even it makes it harder because we're not just talking about individuals. We're talking about whole organizations that have done this, whole churches that have done this. And so it's not a simple thing unless we begin to understand everything through the cross. Only the cross brings legal satisfaction. Only the cross brings fulfillment for the wounds that you have suffered. What the Bible makes clear, what Jesus makes clear, is all sin is against God. So racism is against God. The scripture says when Jesus went to the cross, he became sin. So Jesus became racism. So the Father treated Jesus as the absolute evil which means the Father treated Jesus as if he was a white supremacist. He treated Jesus as if he was a racial terrorist. He treated Jesus as if he were an oppressing government official who uses his power not only to keep people down, but to kill people and dominate people and intimidate people. Jesus loved the oppressed so much that he became the sin of their oppressor so that he could pay the curse of what they've done to you. So that now the Father could treat you as the perfectly righteous Son of God. I don't know anything else that is even close to the kind of atonement that Jesus can make for the offense. And I'm asking those of you who have been particularly hurt, those who have been systematically and systemically oppressed, Will you not prove the reality and the unction of the Holy Spirit over this cardinal doctrine that you and I are only made acceptable to God by the sacrifice and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we only receive that through faith. And if this doesn't apply to racism, then it doesn't apply to anything. It is a difficult thing to walk through these times. But I believe this is the time of new wine. I believe the Lord is pouring out revival. I believe he's pouring out renewal. I don't think it'll look like it's ever looked before. And it may come through an entire group of people it hasn't come through before. But it's here. It's such a decline. It's such a crisis that when God's people cry out, he comes. Why do I say this is so important? Well, because both David and Jesus said only God can forgive. So if only God can really forgive, then only against God is sin done. David said, against you, Lord, and you alone have I sinned. I would say, well, David, what, what about Uriah? You killed him. And Bathsheba, you, you destroyed her life. And yet David, in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying even the murder of Uriah, even the adultery with Bathsheba was against God. 
even as hard as it may be, every racist act was against God. This might be very controversial to say, but that police officer murdered God when he killed George Floyd. That's what the Bible teaches. Every sin is against God. It isn't that it doesn't have consequences. It isn't that it doesn't have, you know, issues for everybody else. Uriah was killed. Bathsheba was hurt. But David said, I did it against you. I murdered you. I committed adultery against you. Jesus follows up in the same vein. He says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Well, the paralytic was paralyzed. Why wouldn't he just say, take up your bed and walk? Why? Because Jesus says the offended party, only the offended party can extend forgiveness. So against Jesus was the sins of this man's life. And against that man, no longer would Jesus hold his sins against him. Against you and against you alone have I sinned, David said. So what Jesus and David are both explaining is that our greatest emotional need is forgiveness, both to receive it and to extend it. So if I have anybody left listening at the end of this, the point then and what the Spirit will anoint in order to destroy racism, in order to have a church, a space where every culture, every gender, Every language, every tribe becomes a reality is only when we say it's Jesus plus nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I'm going to offer all that I've said today as a prayer. I'm going to ask that you decide what you're going to do with it. I still believe there are building blocks all around for us to build a church that looks like the church of the first century. But none of us can do it alone. Will you come with me and do this together? In Jesus' name, amen.